1: This is Reasons To Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello!
2: Yo, buddy. Is Yo, that, bud.
3: Are we going to become more bro-ish? Yo, bud. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so it went well, the live show, it went well. Yeah, I think, uh, fair to me, Link. Oh, come on. I'm quite hard on ourselves, self critical.
3: My my wife is a very critical person. She's a very harsh person. And she said that she enjoyed it enormously. But she said, I've got to stop trying to make the phrase borderline millennial a thing.
2: No, I think it's quite funny. Well, she, she says that it smacks of desperation on my part. No, it's good. We had a good time. The audience had a good time. They don't think our podcast is too long. We, we asked, conducted a spontaneous
3: uh, opinion poll. Yeah, people, exactly. So I was worried it was getting too long, but people seemed to be fine with that. Um, no, it was good. It was good. We're going to do more, aren't we? We are. Well, we, we're going to do another one um, quite soon. Mm, just a couple of weeks' time, actually, in Liverpool. So if you're listening to this in Liverpool or perhaps somewhere else in the Northwest, you fancy popping across.
2: Or even not in the Northwest. You don't need a passport. You don't need a Northwest passport. To not get yet. That. No. Not no. yet, no. Mm. Um, We're going to be at the Liverpool Guild of Students
3: Mountford Hall on the 19th of February, which is um, a Monday. Yep. And um, tickets are on sale now. You can have a look in all the uh, information about the podcast in the podcast notes, and there'll be
2: a link. And it's going to be really exciting and fun. Mm,
3: I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah,
2: me me too. And there'll be more live shows coming soon, including in uh, Doncaster, where I represent... I look forward to that. Oh, i tell you what I want to ask you before we get into it. Mm.
3: Uh, how do you feel about moving out of the Houses of Parliament? I, I saw in the news. I that thought there's...
2: for a minute you were going to say moving out of this loft. I thought you were going to tell me something. <laughs> no, it hasn't I quite was quite really that shocked. No, we'd have to obviously have a vote of both Houses of Parliament to decide whether we moved yes. out of. Uh, um, I feel I, I voted for it. I think it's good for us to move out. Is it as dilapidated as yeah. uh, it is? There's a place you park your car, and honestly, I think it's, like, it's massively a health hazard. There's all this like live wiring where you're walking down to it, and it's got always absolutely all flooded with water and everything. I mean, it just looks really like shonky donkey, really bad.
3: <laughs> shonky donkey? Yeah. <laughs> it's another ed- edism for uh, you. Um, <laughs> the next round of merchandise, yeah. <laughs> we've kind of a shonky donkey in
2: there. <laughs> it's the best kind of donkey in my view. Uh, <laughs> Um no it's really it's really you know and also I think uh, this has been a long historic problem of people putting off I think the last time we had proper repairs, they were put off and put off and put off, and they ended up costing more money, so I think it's like we should just get the f out and then you know get the repairs done. when was the first time you ever walked in that building um That is a good question. I think at the age as a teenager, I must have gone to see a debate or something. Other people get to see the Smiths. Exactly, People going raving. Yeah, I, I just, went see the debate about Westland, <laughs>
3: <laughs> the Westland helicopter. Yeah,
2: thing. <laughs> uh, I got quite obsessed with the Westland helicopter thing in the nineties. It was the nineteen eighty six. Was it like the thing that brought Michael Heseltine? Uh, he Michael resigned Hesenthal. from the cabinet over yeah. it. Yeah, but it but it was a thing where Thatcher famously said, "I may not be prime minister by six p.m. tonight." Wow. Uh, but I not think I don't think that was ever going to happen. But it was. It was all, it was one of these things that's quite obscure, mm. but it sort of became a big scandal. Can I just say,
3: I don't know if you can hear this on the microphone, but my son is yelping. Mm. I don't know if I'm just going to stick
2: my head out of the door and see if he's. Uh, I'm going to sort of, I'll keep it going on my own, listeners, uh, while Jeff tries to uh, sort out his uh, son. He's showing that he's being the caring dad. Um, sounds like he's having he's, fun. I don't think he's having fun. It, wasn't, it, was it was all fine. Yes. So, Jeff is now back <laughs> at the microphone and it was all seamless uh, because, you know, that's what we like as professionals. Um, that was
3: very good. Yeah, it you was did a good, good job of filling that. It
2: felt a bit just a minute ish, but yeah.
3: anyway. Um, I don't, well, I didn't have headphones on, so I didn't hear if there was any repetition, deviation. Yeah. Um, so, should we talk about what we're talking about this week then? Yes sortition is the word i've got written down in front of me yeah. Now I, I see that and i think of the sorting hat in harry potter and finding out whether we're going to be in gryffindor or
2: slytherin but that's that's not the case i think what this really is about is democracy if democracy is just about elections once every four or five years is that good enough given that a lot of people are losing faith in elections, democracy, and so on, are there other things we could be doing to involve ordinary people who are not politicians in decision-making? And what the people we're going to be talking to have pioneered in different ways is, it's based on a very simple idea, but it's based on the jury system, really, which is you choose people randomly to deliberate on issues of national importance. And we're going to be talking about why that might be helpful for decision makers and decision making in our country
3: right because in recent years of course we've had the uh, we've had a couple of referenda but there's almost an idea that things which are too toxic for politicians they um knock them over to the general public and the general public either they they don't turn out for the vote or they turn out and the the opinions aren't
2: necessarily the best informed ones and it's it's sort of
3: a way around that is that right yeah and
2: you know look i'm i'm interested in this gordon brown was briefly interested in this idea when he first became prime minister I, i i think that i think what it speaks to is that you know often the way political debate is conducted can feel quite superficial and can feel like people aren't being properly informed. And the question is, by, by we obviously want everybody better, be, to be better informed, but by selecting certain random groups of people to get engaged in decision-making, can we make a difference? And are there other things we could be doing beyond elections um, to, to engage people more in, in decision-making?
3: So it's not an alternative, it's it's an addition to the existing form of reparation. I think when I was thinking, when you you first mentioned it, I thought, yeah, are we really going to do a whole podcast about something we could do instead of voting? I mean, I know, as Jesus Christ once famously said, if voting changed anything, they'd abolish it. Exactly.
2: But um, what don't think it was Jesus Christ. I
3: just think if you don't know who the quote is from, a oh, right. it to, to Christ is, yeah. a, is a good rule I think in the
2: Jeffocracy, there might not be voting because you might... Well, maybe you're just going to be so popular that it would be a sort of North Korean situation. You a bit get more benevolent than 100% of the vote, <laughs> yeah. uh, 101%. So we're going to be talking to David Van Raybrook, who has uh, written a book called Against Elections, The Case for Democracy, uh, Professor James Fishkin, who is widely seen around the world from Stanford University as one of the people who's really the founders of the idea of deliberative democracy. And then Sarah Allen, head of engagement at involved in the UK, working pe- with people on deliberation and democracy.
3: And in addition to that, coming in to pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, a very funny comedian. Uh, you will have seen her on TV. She's also often on the Bugle podcast, Felicity Ward, which I'm very excited about. She's really funny.
2: Great. So do you have a reason to be cheerful this week? Well yes. Um th- there's this guy George Ezra who we had on the podcast <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. on maybe uh, may uh, mentioned on passing. Sunday and I don't know whether you know but I had lunch with him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you Anyway, well that, last yeah. Wednesday I had lunch with him. This week last Wednesday I had a pot noodle th- this, on my own. <laughs> this week for lunch. <laughs> this week I don't need think you had a pot noodle for lunch. Uh, um uh, well, this, you think it's more of a uh, fancy dinner time? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this week, I uh, this week we went to his. Justine and I went to his concert at the Shoreditch, Shoreditch Town Hall. It was great, and uh-huh. I met his 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 parents, who are absolutely lovely people. And honestly, the thing about George Ezra uh, is that he's so kind of grounded and normal for somebody who's a kind of pop star. And uh, he, I can see why, because his parents, all of his mates, who are from Hartford uh, where he grew up are just inc- were incredibly nice, and we ha- we had a great time, wow, and we felt should... borderline millennial.
3: It sure would have been uh, sure would have been nice to get a ticket. To but just concert.
2: to be clear, Jeff was invited <laughs> was, to the I concert. I do not, because I, you know <laughs> I've got enough grief for the lunch. You were invited to the concert, but you had other I, I responsibilities. Up, yeah, I couldn't yeah. get a babysitter. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Maybe yeah. I should have offered to babysit and not come to the concert. Oh,
3: yeah, that, that, that would have, that would have been it. Would have been quite beyond. Would have
2: been quite beyond the
3: call. <laughs> um, so because. George was on our live show in London on Sunday. Did you go on and do a song with him?
2: I was tempted, but I just thought, you know, save it for the bigger stage. Yeah, for really. yeah. <laughs> so maybe if he's a, a gla- Glasto next year. Right. You know, I think probably that's the sort of right moment to yeah. unveil my my uh, my musical talent. But a good concert, great concert, yeah.
3: Um, and uh, you. So my reason to be cheerful—I would never have picked this as a reason to be cheerful, but my wife has insisted that I use it because she thinks it's a good one. So last night we were performing our pre-bedtime ablutions. She's brushing her teeth, and I go to the—I go to the loo, and <laughs> I'm, I'm urinating, and I feel a little pain. And I say to her, "I think I've got cystitis. Can men get cystitis?" And she says, "Well, if they can, you're bound to get it. You, you get everything if there's an ailment, you're going to get it." So I'm, I'm sort of like in a little bit of discomfort. And I say to her, "Does does this look normal to you?" And and she says, "Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe it does look a little red." And I'm saying, "I'm not. I'm not sure. Does it?" And um, and then all of a sudden, like two drops of undiluted blood drip out of my appendage. So she says, right, you'll go to the doctor's tomorrow morning. So I wake up this morning, I ring the doctor at half past eight, I get an appointment at 11 o'clock, I go, the GP is just brilliant, you know, she wants a urine specimen, she wants me to go back for blood tests on Monday, she thinks it's very unlikely it's anything than, other than a, um, a urinary tract infection, but she... You know, she's, she's on it. But she also wants to examine me just to check that everything looks right down there, which she does. And she says, well, that is a fantastically healthy looking penis. And I thought maybe that's just the thing she says to patients who feel uncomfortable because, you know, nobody likes to be examined in that way. But then we go over to the desk, you know, I put, I'm dressed again. She's talking me through what she's going to do, what test she's going to run. And she said, and like I say, that is a fantastically healthy looking penis. So here I am, age forty-five, and a medical professional is giving me that 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 compliment. That's a reason to be cheerful, right? <laughs> do Do you not agree that that's a reason to be cheerful?
2: Right. Uh, well, congratulations! Thank you. I very always good. knew you had it in you, so to speak. <laughs>
1: You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: So we're joined now by David van Raybrook, historian and writer who wrote the recent book Against Elections, The Case for Democracy. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. In your book, you talk about what you call democratic fatigue syndrome, which led you to some of your conclusions about how to improve and enrich our democracies. Tell us a little bit about how you see this democratic
4: fatigue syndrome. Well, it seems to me that many Western democracies are suffering from this condition. It means that less and less people are member of a political party, less and less people bother to go and vote. Making a government seems to be harder. Running a government until the end of a term it seems to be harder in quite a number of countries. And I think the defining feature of democratic fatigue syndrome is the growing distrust between citizens and politicians. And it's not only citizens distrusting. Uh, politicians, but also vice versa. And your book
2: charts the 3,000 years or so of democratic experiments across the world, and asserts that only for the last 300 years have elections been synonymous with democracy. Well, can yes. Explain to us a, a little bit about the history.
4: Well, today, we all, we always think that if you say democracy, you say elections, that the one cannot go without the other. But this is forgetting that We've been trying to do democracy for about 3,000 years. We've only been doing it through elections for the past 200 years. So it's not, it's not necessary to consider them as, as, as this one and the same thing. If you look back at ancient Athens, uh, which, is, which is the cradle of, of, of democracy, you'll see that of, of the 7,000 public functions, only 100 were, were elected. All the rest were drafted by lot, This may seem very strange, very odd to us today, but this is indeed how it was done. So Parliament mandates for for justice, for the courts, etc., were all brought together by a process of random sampling from citizens. The big disadvantage of Athens was that not everybody was considered as a citizen. You had slaves, you had youngsters, and women were not excluded. We don't want to repeat that model, but the idea that democracy could be done by drafting random samples by lot is an interesting one that we have all but forgotten.
3: So what are some of the problems with representative democracy?
4: Well, lottery is also a form, this this, this Athenian method, is also a form of representative democracy, but there's a big difference. If you are elected thanks to elections, thanks to a vote, at the end of the day, you always have to balance the long-term and the short term, you always have to balance serving the public good and making sure that your party will win the next election again. But this has worked for about 200 years, it has worked quite well. But today, for the first time in history, we've come to the point that the weight of the next election has become more important than the weight of the previous election. So there is a form of fear and some form of paralysis interfering. And so if you are an elected politician, you always have to balance the common good and the party good and the long term versus the short term. And this is getting complicated in a model that is entirely based on elections.
3: So can you talk to us about sortition then? Can you explain what it is and what you perceive the advantages of it to be?
4: Sortition is the technical word in the English language for this Athenian model of democracy, whereby assemblies are created by drafting people by lot and inviting them to speak. It's more than an opinion poll. As a matter of fact, we use lottery uh, and sortition already every day, Uh, but it's in in the worst possible form, and we call it opinion polls. With an opinion poll, we make a random sample of people, and we ask them what they think when they don't think. And here the idea is we, we ask a random sample of people what they think, after they had a chance to think. And this is happening in Ireland right now. I think Ireland is perhaps the most innovative democracy in the West right now. Uh, The past couple of years, uh, Irish government has been bringing together random samples of citizens to come and talk not just on mundane matters, but really substantial, even constitutional matters. One of them was same-sex marriage a couple of years ago. And 100 people were brought together then. 33 were politicians, elected politicians. 66 were random citizens drafted by lot. And they came together for 14 months. They had to discuss a number of issues of the Irish Constitution. The most controversial one was the same-sex marriage issue. And those people came together for a period of 14 months. They saw each other for one weekend every month. And they basically learned from each other learn from the experts they could invite, and were able to make a recommendation to the Irish government about what to do with same-sex marriage. And their recommendation was that the constitution should be adapted. Now, that went into a referendum, and that was the first time in history that a constitutional change was brought about, thanks to working with a random sample of citizens deliberating with each other. And
2: David, what is the advantage so That's a really good specific example, but what is the advantage of that over a politician coming forward and saying, "It's now's the time for a referendum on same sex marriage or you know campaigners forcing politics
4: to take account of it? Why is it sort of different?: It's different because it's better. We have basically three ways to do democracy. Democracy is the government in which people speak and decide and determine their future. Uh, We know two procedures quite well. One is elections, the other one is referendums. The third one is this sortition. Why is sortition in a number of cases better? Well, let's go back to the Irish case. The, The Irish government said, like, if we are going to decide this with party politicians, whatever we will decide we'll have the next election in the back of our mind. And this may influence the decision we take. And especially I can imagine in Catholic Ireland that you as a politician would be very careful to make a number of decisions uh, if you're thinking about the next election. So the alternative would have been turning to a referendum. But the problem with referendums is that they are very good because they give people a voice. But it's not quite clear what is meant by that voice and they have a big danger and the biggest danger of referendums is that they may divide a society for a long time to go. And so the Irish government in its wisdom decided not to solve this issue through party politics. And not to do it through a referendum either, but through a much smarter model, which was this sortition-based model that then went to Parliament and then went to a referendum. Now that was a more interesting procedure than a blunt referendum or blunt party politics as we know it.
2: Talking of referenda, David, I think you may have heard that we had a referendum here, um, which didn't go so well for those who were wanting to keep us in the European (laughs) Union. And we are dealing with the consequences of it. Yeah. If David Cameron had talked to you before embarking on that fateful decision, what would you have advised him?
4: He could have become the leader of democratic innovation across the world if he would have tackled the brexit question in a more intelligent manner and a more responsible manner than he did the problem is with, with the brexit referendum it's very hard to know to what extent this decision was taken rationally some of the people were obviously clearly documented but there was no need for documentation and so using the the lottery model the old Athenian model that is being experimented with throughout the globe if that was have been used in the UK the answer would have been more substantial and richer it is not necessarily the case that Scottish would have given a different answer it might have been the same answer and that's fine i don't personally i don't have any problem with brexit as long as i know that it was taken rationally
2: let, let me ask you this um if you think about the athenian city state or yeah. the venetian city state Yes. It was a much, much smaller number of people. Yes, I think my, I think my, the central kind of issue I would pose to you on this is that if it's if you have like a few thousand people in a city state of tens of thousands of people, you can see how it can win legitimacy. That's right. The, the, how how do you do that though in a country of sixty million plus people, the UK, bringing together? you know, 20, 50, 100, even 1,000 people. I suppose that that is presumably one of the obstacles to this.
4: Yes, but it's not so much, it's not such a big obstacle. I mean, if you would have told the old Athenians that democracy was going to become, I mean, Athens was quite small. If if you would have told them that it would have become the model for running a country the size of India, uh, which has 1.2 billion inhabitants, they would have been surprised too. Democracy is scalable, and these experiments, I mean, they, they go way back to, to ancient Athens, but they've been done in the present as well. They've been done for... The state of South Australia, in Canada, states of Ontario, British Columbia, millions of people in organizations and countries of millions of inhabitants have been experimenting with this procedure. Uh, Ireland is not as big as, as the UK is, but it is interesting to see that it goes well beyond the level of an, an antique city state. Now, what I would do, what I would have recommended David Cameron had he asked my advice, I think I would have worked on the level of the constituency. I think I would have brought together a random sample of 100 citizens in each and every constituency across the UK. And I think I would have asked these uh, random samples all across the country to deliberate on Brexit. And in a second step, there might have been a, a sample of the sample, so to speak, perhaps a thousand people coming together in, in London or, or, or wherever else to deliberate on the final recommendations. So it's perfectly possible to start on the local level, move on to the constituency level and bring it to the national level. This is happening.
2: You're obviously celebrating what's happened in Ireland. Is there any other good examples that you'd point us to in particular?
4: Uh, I think a very interesting one is what happened in South Australia uh, last year. Uh, I was told by the people who organised the the event in in South Australia, there was a big discussion whether South Australia, with its limited economic resources, uh, was going to become the global storage place for nuclear waste. I mean, obviously, that would have brought in quite a lot of money, but... It entails some dangers. And there too, Australian politicians were like Irish politicians in saying that, well, uh, this is too touchy for party politicians to, to solve and it's too divisive for a referendum. Uh, let us do it differently. They brought together uh, 300 citizens from South Australia. They asked the citizens, who are the experts you trust to solve this issue? They, the citizens came together for a number of weekends. They were given time, they were given information, they were given a space to deliberate and at the end of the day, The recommendation of the uh, South Australians was that, uh, although in the short run, this may bring a lot of cash to South Australia, in the long run, this is not a clever idea because we do not know the geological consequences. So this is, again, a very good example to see where regular citizens can basically go faster and be smarter than elected politicians.
2: Last question, David. We've got something called the House of Lords in Britain. (laughs) Um, I I recently shared a lift with somebody who had the Earl of Sandwich on his name badge. And I thought, God, I'm sharing a lift with the, the great, 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 great grandson of someone who invented the sandwich. It's not by virtue of him inventing the sandwich that he got into the Lords. But, you know, it says something about our uh, situation here.
4: Yeah. What, what would you do with the House of Lords? I'm not sure about the British system. We also have a Senate in Belgium. I'm based in Brussels. It was also the room, the assembly room of the aristocracy. Now that value and that role has uh, dramatically diminished. And I launched the idea that our Senate should become a second chamber with citizens drafted by lot. So we would keep the system of two chambers. Parliament would be the place with citizens who are elected through regular elections, as as is the case nowadays. And the Senate, your House of Lords, would become the place where citizens are drafted by lot. And this idea was launched a couple of years ago in my book Against Elections. And now leading politicians in Belgium are starting to explore that idea The same is happening in Holland. Leading politicians in Holland are talking about it. Uh, The idea of having a permanent representation of ordinary citizens might not be uh, such a bad idea after all. And especially to have citizens who are free from electoral fever, who are free from party pressure, would be a great complement to the present system of representative democracy.
2: David Van Raybrook, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll pass on to the uh, lords that they might be abolished for uh, ordinary citizens sometime soon. (laughs) Thank you. I'm really honoured that we're now joined by Professor James Fishkin from Stanford University, who is one of the founding fathers of deliberative democracy. James, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Just as a basic for our listeners to begin with, how do you define deliberative democracy?
5: Well, in my view, deliberative democracy is a combination of political equality, that's what makes it a species of democracy, and deliberation, where the people can really think, weigh competing arguments, listen to the reasons of others, and come to an informed decision. So it's democracy when the people are thinking, and that's why I use that as the title of my new book that's about to come out with Oxford democracy when the people are thinking. And most of the time, political competition, and with all due respect, many politicians, I'm sure not you, will do their best to persuade and sometimes, not you, but sometimes manipulate the public, mislead the public, do whatever they can. Politicians and parties want to win elections, they don't want to win the argument. So the question is, can we make a context where people really want to think about the competing reasons and that involves everybody can we make such a context consequential for public policy making and important public decisions and that's what we're doing with deliberative polling in many countries around the world
2: and and the first deliberative opinion poll i believe i'm right in saying took place in manchester Uh, on national TV in
5: in the 1990s, is that right? And and can you tell us a bit about this? That's right. We put all of Britain in one room where it could think about uh, the issue of crime in small groups where they could discuss the issues. A couple of things that I learned that in that first try. First of all, we knew the sample was representative because the 300 who came could be compared to the 600 who did not come but who took the interview initial interview. And in their attitudes and demographics, there were almost no significant differences of any sort. It was a really good microcosm. Second point, the problem with ordinary polling is that, or the the opinion you get in ordinary polling, is that what social scientists call rational ignorance. If I've got one vote in millions, why should I pay attention to public issues? I've got all kinds of other things I need to do. And so a woman came up to me, at that event who was the um, spouse of a participant we allowed the spouses to come and observe and she said she wanted to thank me because in 30 years of marriage her husband had never read a newspaper but from the moment he was invited to this event he started to read every newspaper every day and he was going to be much more interesting to live with in retirement So that overcame rational ignorance, you see. He knew that his voice mattered. In this case, it was just because it was going to be on national television. But in other cases, we've used the fact that their voice matters because there's going to be some consequential decision and the government or important civic groups are consulting their views uh, about it and also they're going to speak in small groups because it's not just 300 or 400 or 500. Indeed, the one we did recently in Mongolia was 700 for changing the constitution in Mongolia, but the point is it's they're divided into small groups of 12 to 15 with trained moderators. The basic oh, the other thing I learned about that is a microcosm of the public will have its own intellectual resources many of them unexpected. For example, the issue in Manchester was crime and what to do about it. And I was listening to a small group and there was a criminal in the sample. I hadn't thought about that, but uh, I was listening to a car thief talking to middle class. He turned up in the sample and he had things to say about the issues.
2: And what did they conclude about crime?
5: It was uh, very much in keeping with one of the panellists You could summarize the results by one of the panelists in the plenary session was Tony Blair, who was then the uh, Shadow Home Secretary. Tough on
2: crime, tough on the causes of crime.
5: That's right. Now, he said that. So they were beginning to look at other cost-effective ways of dealing with crime, especially the root causes of crime. But we've done 108 of these projects since, and uh, many of them have been set up and designed to have an input to public policy or decision making.
2: Tell us where they've been the most impactful, James, do you think?
5: Well, uh, one case was Texas, where not long after that, there was a requirement that, and this will seem like a boring subject, the The eight regulated utilities in Texas had to consult the public about where they were going to get their future energy. Uh, Coal, natural gas, nuclear was pretty much off the table, but theoretically a possibility. Conservation or uh, piping in the, the electricity from Mexico, these are consequential choices for the environment and, as we later realized, for climate change as well. The companies said... We need to have something that is representative and thoughtful and informed. And they felt if they just did focus groups, they were too small to be representative. If they did ordinary polls, the polls would represent no, not an informed opinion or maybe even non-existent opinions because people never like to say they don't know. So they will just offer an answer at random. And you can't have hundreds of millions of dollars decisions uh, turning on um, arbitrary answers. And if they have open meetings, they get flooded by lobbyists and organized interests that are unrepresentative of the rest of the public. So they did deliberative polls, all eight of them, with the Public Utility Commission. And what happened is the percentage of the public that were willing to pay a little bit more on their electricity bills every month in order to subsidize renewable energy like wind power, and also in order to incentivize conservation, went up from 50% to 85% averaged over the eight projects. And so the Public Utility Commission actually implemented very tiny increases in the monthly uh, bills, which ended up funding renewable energy. And Texas went from dead last number 50 out of the 50 states in terms of the amount of wind power in 1996 to uh, number one, By 2007, it transformed. Uh, Texas has even increased further its commitments to uh, wind power. There's a lot of wind in Texas.
2: Let me ask you a question, as a sort of, from a kind of politician's viewpoint, which is, because this is obviously a richer form of deliberation, and it's very interesting the way you describe it. But how does that then translate into sort of legitimacy? for decision making. In, in other words, in an Athenian city state of tens of thousands of people, if you get a few thousand people, it's kind of, you know, it's a kind of significant fraction of the population. Whereas if you get a thousand people out of a population of 65 million or more, it's a very small percentage. Well, how? just right. Talk about that issue about scale, scaling up from the deliberation to public policy implementation.
5: Well, first of all, What this provides is what I call a route to responsible advocacy. That is, you know what would really weigh with the public, arguments for or against a proposal, and why. And that can be invoked by decision makers and politicians. When we did a a project in the Regione Lazio, which included health care costs, uh, that's, that's the state in Italy where Rome is the capital, for years, the SSR told me that, that they had been hoping to redistribute the health care expenditures, cutting the number of hospital beds and using polyambulatory clinics. But the public liked the fact that they had a surplus of hospital beds. And he said, you gave me cover to do the right thing. And they did it. They implemented it. And because then he could invoke the result. Those were his exact words. He could invoke the result for the decision. And we found the same thing in Japan. We found the same thing in many countries where if you have an appropriate advisory group at the beginning that's balanced, and then you have the materials are balanced, it's all transparent. And the Athenians did not have television. <laughs> uh, they did not have social media to spread the result. And we're also experimenting now with with social media to try to scale the same deliberative process at the same time. Bruce Ackerman and I wrote a book called in 2004 called Deliberation Day, which was the idea of scaling the same deliberative process. And I think it's now possible with social media rather than face-to-face. Other forms of mass democracy have not made a comment about Britain, but Brexit and some other referenda have raised questions in the minds of many people about whether... For an important decision, the referendum is the appropriate way of consulting the public.
2: You are the master of the understatement, James. <laughs> uh, let, let me ask you that you've actually just led me on to my next question. David Cameron rings you up a year before his referendum was due to happen. And he says, look, I'm thinking about having this referendum, but I kind of guess it's more complicated than yes, no, but I do want to get popular buy-in.
5: What do you advise him to do? Ah, well, we did actually do deliberate polls before the referendum, on nationally televised, before the referendum on the Republic in Australia and the referendum in Denmark before the Euro. And we wanted to do one in Britain, but nobody was interested at that point because... We had it all control. under control, James. We knew it was going <laughs> to That's we right. Knew it was that's that's go what go I fine. was told. Yeah. That's what I was told. However, in my book, Democracy When The People Are Thinking, I talk about ways of making the referendum process more deliberative. Going back first to the agenda setting and the formulation, you could have a deliberation at that stage. But secondly, I recommend that there be a two-stage referendum. That is, if you have a referendum, you should have a chance two years later to reconsider. And that should be built in from the beginning on a really major constitutional change. Then there ought to be outreach on the issues. And there ought to be a spread. The same materials from a deliberative poll should be used to foster discussions around the country. Uh, Those are some of the things that could be done to make a referendum more deliberative. You've
2: given us a good example from Italy, which allows us to get our heads around this about health, a sort of change in healthcare. You mentioned the Mongolian constitution. Are Are there other examples you'd point us to, just to paint a picture in our minds of the kinds of decisions that this has been useful for?
5: A number of years ago, we did a national deliberative poll in Bulgaria about the condition of the Roma, and it was a bit in this big hall that had left over from the Soviet era, and it was a big national thing, and it was about the Roma's condition in education, crime, or the criminal justice system and uh, housing. And we had six percent Roma in the sample, which is about the percentage in the population. And everybody was very surprised that there was a big movement in the uh, willingness of the Bulgarian people, to close the Roma-only schools, which were uh, segregated at the time, and bust the children into schools with everybody else. And the Prime Minister lauded that. There was an interview in the New York Times about that. In any case, my Bulgarian colleagues tell me that that event began the process, which is now culminating in the Bulgarian uh, schools being desegregated and the Roma children officially going to the same schools as everybody else most people had never had a conversation with the roma about these issues in a, because we create a safe mutually respectful civic a uh, civil environment just as most British people would never have had a conversation uh, with a car thief about criminal justice policy. But you can have such a conversation and you begin to look at the world from the perspective of the others affected.
3: Is there any evidence that deliberative democracy tips people in either a more progressive or a more conservative direction? Or is it just really case by case, depending on the issue?
5: Well, so far, I still think after 108 cases, I still think it's, it's case by case. I wouldn't offer a generalization. What I will say is I'm often surprised by the results, but I always learn from the reasons that people have, and they make sense given their values and their interests and their willingness to discuss with others. So I wouldn't want to offer a generalization except the inclusiveness of the random sampling, if done well, and there's so much bad polling around that it almost pollutes the atmosphere to talk about polling, But because we get really high response rates. We work really hard to get a good sample. We had some bad polling um, in 2015
2: and- when I lost the general election, James. <laughs> so you're touching on a sore point.
5: <laughs> well, we've had it here, too. But, you know, we have we have polls with response rates of uh, in the single digits in the U.S. having an influence on political behavior here. We do polling even in the U.S. when we we've got response rates uh, 60, 70 percent. And in Mongolia, it was 95 percent. Wow. Are you rewriting the Mongolian constitution then? Uh, amending, amending. Uh, but here's the interesting thing. We did this project in Mongolia at the city level for Ulaanbaatar, and it was such a big success, and we had this bipartisan advisory group, it is now required by law to do deliberative polling before the parliament can consider a constitutional amendment. So one party had a favorite amendment, which was adding a second chamber. Another party had a favorite amendment, which was indirect election of the president rather than direct election. And both parties were open to a number of proposals about uh, having a, a, a professional civil service, uh, combating corruption, having uh, integrity for the judiciary so it, it would be protected from politics, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and also... An increase in certain powers of the prime minister who at the moment cannot hire and fire the members of his cabinet. By the way, Mongolia is a competitive democracy with a private property market system miraculously situated between Russia and China. So what happened is the favorite proposal of, of each of the parties went way down. That is, they didn't want to change the way the president was elected, and they didn't want the second chamber for very good reasons having to do with the design of that second chamber, which would simply mirror the first chamber and therefore wouldn't be a check on the other chamber. But they did want anti-corruption, professional civil service. They did want the increase in the power in the prime minister, and that is now sitting before parliament As we speak. And I was just in Mongolia. I think it has a lot of support, and I think the parliament may pass it. We'll see. You know, that's going to happen after the Lunar New Year holiday. And and so the deliberative polling, which was an almost perfect microcosm of the people brought to this uh, government palace under a great statue of Genghis Khan, (laughs) deliberated 700 people in small groups of 12 to 15. They took over the uh, entire main government building for a long weekend and uh, they came to their conclusions for good reasons and that's described in my book without the punchline democracy when the people are thinking And also, a lot of this is described in the Center for Deliberative Democracy website. Well, look,
2: James, I hope they erect a statue to you in uh, Ulaanbaatar alongside (laughs) Genghis Khan, or at least you get the freedom of Ulaanbaatar. But look, you've definitely got the freedom of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been brilliant.
3: My pleasure. So listening to David and James with us is Sarah Allen, Head of Engagement at Involve. Can you tell us a little bit about what Involve is and and what you do there, please, Sarah?
6: Yeah, sure. So it involves a charity that works to ensure that people are at the heart of decision-making. And one of the ways we do that is to specialise in techniques like those that Jim and David have been talking about. So techniques that enable people to shape the decisions that affect their lives, those decisions that are taken by government and public sector bodies between elections. And we do various things around them. So we design and run those processes. So very practically delivering them. We also do research around them. And we think through how they can fit with the existing political system, both in the short term and the long term.
3: And, and one thing that as, as I was listening to both, I was wondering about is, if you're not the person picked to take part in deliberative democracy and, and this way of doing things how, how disengaged do other members of the public feel because people can wrap their head around voting sort of uh, i've got a vote and i'll use it if they're not part of that is that a risk you you run that they sort of disengage from it
6: so the evidence around this is actually really positive. So members of the public tend to trust decisions made by other members of the public in techniques like this more than they trust decisions like a jury. Yeah, like a jury. They trust it more than decisions made by politicians. And there's actually quite a lot of evidence that it helps with implementing decisions as well. So rates of things like people paying their taxes goes up where these decisions have been made by members of the public.
2: What would be the evidence you draw on for that?
6: So I can think of a particular case in Russia that I was reading about, but I think there is quite a lot of evidence, if you look at the academic literature on this, that compliance goes up when decisions are made by sections of the public.
2: Tell us a bit about what Involve has been doing in this area.
6: So we do lots of things in this area. So we run two, I guess, distinct types of processes using many different methods, but I think it's probably useful to think of it like this. So you have one type of method that's very much what Jim and David were talking about, where you get a representative sample of the public together and get them to make a decision. And examples of processes like that are citizens' juries, citizens' assemblies. So we ran one last year on Brexit, and we've got another one coming up this year in Northern Ireland. But there's another sort of process that we run as well. So we had kind of 34 projects last year, so we do these sorts of things a lot, which is about people's lived experience. So that's not about getting a representative sample of the public, but that's about where areas or where the national government is trying to improve a specific service. So the people you want to talk to then aren't a representative sample of the population. They're the people who use that service.
2: So what's the for instance of that one?
6: So I run a project at the minute called MH2K which is on youth mental health working in four local areas looking at what they can do to improve youth mental health in those areas. So I don't want a representative sample of the population for that. Who I work with are young people who have mental health problems themselves or whose families and friends do, young people from at-risk groups for mental health. And yeah sure I keep an eye on the population so one of the areas is Birmingham. I look at the ethnic mix of the area, make sure that that's broadly representative within the young people I have, make sure that kind of all the different localities in Birmingham are broadly represented but it's not strictly sampled in the way that jim and david were talking about because that's not what it's about it's not about a section of the public making a decision which is legitimate to make on behalf of everyone else like if they were going to decide what should happen on brexit or how social care should be funded it's about using people's lived experiences to say this is what's working about services. and what's your mental health thing
2: kind of what's the conclusions that's coming up with the kind of conclusions or the kind of difference it would make to the service
6: so it provides a list of recommendations for decision makers so we only run it in areas where decision makers want to listen to the results so it talks about what they can do from prevention all the way through to services to make it better so we piloted it in oldham last year where they're now implementing the recommendations from it and it had things from very simple things like having drop boxes in school so that people could flag that they had mental health problems anonymously to saying that data sharing between services was really poor and young people were having to relive their experiences when they went from young people's to adult services and that people really needed to sort that out because it was damaging. So a whole raft... Of different so that genres. was
2: the second set of things would be what some people would call consultation. But consultation sort of got a bad name now because consultation is seen as the government knows what it wants to do. They pretend to listen to people and they go ahead with it anyway.
1: <laughs>
6: yeah, I mean, well, that's fair enough. And also traditional consultation doesn't think very hard about who you want to reach. So at its worst, you get quite technical document on a website, yeah. which people have to know is there to start with. Then they have to be able to read it and respond in policy speak to it or understand policy speak to respond to it, you're only going to get a very certain part of the population who's going to take part in something like that. Whereas if you think the other way around and go, well I want to make a decision on this youth mental health service, who do I want to talk to young people with mental health problems or young people from at-risk groups? What sort of process would they feel comfortable getting engaged with? Where do I need to go to engage with them? You have a completely different process. So I think it's quite fair enough that consultation has a bad a bad name.
2: Now let's talk about the big elephant in the room Brexit. You've actually done this Brexit thing uh, and you're about to do another one. Tell us about what came out of your first one.
6: Okay, so the Citizens' Assembly on Brexit, uh, it was run by us, the Constitution Unit at University College London, the University of Westminster and a couple of other partners. It brought together 50 uh, members of the public, a representative of the UK population in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, social class, place of residence and how they voted in the EU referendum, so more levers uh, than remainers in the room, and they looked specifically at what the shape of Brexit should be on trade and migration. So they didn't look at whether we should be should have left the EU. We didn't rerun the referendum. They looked at what should happen now. And they came out with a whole series of recommendations. So we started off by asking them what they most wanted to be able to value about the country in which they live. Because this is what is essentially what this is all about. And their top things were quality of public services, effective democracy, standards of social care, social equality, freedom of speech, the natural environment and cultural diversity. So then we moved on from that and said, OK, well, given that... Um, What do you think the guidelines for trade and migration policy should be? And actually, I should pause here and just explain how a a citizen's assembly is structured. So it starts off with a learning phase. So once you get these people in the room for the first time, you start off by making sure everyone's okay with kind of key terms. So this was going to be quite a technical discussion. So we went through things like what are tariffs, what are non-tariff barriers to trade, all of that. Then they hear from experts who argue all the different points of view. Right. So they hear all of that. They get a chance to question the experts. So you have this intense learning phase first. That was the first weekend in Manchester. And then the second weekend, they start to talk amongst themselves and say, well, OK, given what we've heard, what is it that we would recommend? And you structure the discussion to take them through that in logical steps. So we started off with what they wanted to be able to value about the country they lived in. In fact, we started that discussion before they even heard the expert speakers. Then we move them on and say, OK, given the arguments and what you thought was most important that you heard last weekend, what would your guidelines be for the government on what trade and migration policy should be?
2: And what did they come up with?
6: So on trade, they said their priority should be to minimise harm to the economy, protect the NHS and public services, maintain living standards, take account of impacts on all parts of the UK, protect workers' rights and avoid a hard border with Ireland. So that was trade.
2: And on immigration?
6: On immigration, invest in training for UK nationals, keep better data on migrants, enable us to sustain public services, benefit our economy be responsive to regional need, and include better planning of public services. So it's interesting, they took quite a broad perspective on it, so they didn't just say literally.
2: Now let me just challenge you for a second. Tell us why that isn't motherhood and apple pie, or to use a Boris Johnson phrase, having your cake and eating it. I mean, do you... Uh, did, did they resolve sort of dilemmas like you know we'd prefer to have better trade even if it means having freedom of movement?
6: So after that we moved them on and gave them concrete options yeah. for what trade and migration yeah. policy should be after Brexit and got them to decide with reference to yeah. their key principles and they decided on trade their first preference would be for the government to achieve a comprehensive trade deal with the European Union that covered tariff and non-tariff barriers so taxes and also standards on things like safety that make it easier to trade. If you couldn't get a comprehensive deal, then a limited trade deal would be their next preference. If no sort of bespoke arrangement was possible at all, then they'd like to stay in the single market in the customs union as opposed to leave with no deal. Really strongly, that preference. Then on migration, this really surprised us. So their preferred option was to keep freedom of movement, but for the UK government to implement the controls that they could be doing within single market rules. So what was really surprising to members of the Assembly was that they hadn't realised that at the moment we could deport, essentially, um, people who aren't financially uh, self-sustaining after three months.
2: That's really interesting.
3: You feel quite angry listening to it, though. You know, your red
2: mist was rising. Well, I just think
3: if people were... It's the difference between an opinion poll and an informed opinion poll, right? That's yeah. sort of a like headline for yeah, it. And, and people are reasonable if they're they're given the given yeah. information. So
6: we had a whole next section planned, which was in our heads, assuming people were going to say they wanted a really close trading relationship but really restricted immigration. Yeah. Saying to them, the next section was to say to them, "Well, you know, you can't, know, have, you can't both. have both. Yeah. So which would you?" That's really interesting. Um, But actually, that section proved a bit redundant because they'd had a it had a consistent position to start with.
2: That is really interesting. Mm. Before we get to some conclusions about this, there's one other element I want to talk to you about, and this is the notion. It's another concept: participatory budgeting. Tell us a little bit about what that means, and is that something your organisation is involved with?
6: So participatory budgeting is in some ways quite different from everything else you've been discussing today. So it can be done in lots of different ways, but. Usually it involves an area defining a set budget that's open for the process, then collecting ideas for what that budget could be spent on. And then once you've got those ideas, you open it up to a vote and anybody from that population can vote on how they want it spent.
2: So this might be young people deciding how they spend the youth services budget, which some councils, I think, have done.
6: Yes. So that's been done. Um, In Paris, it's a huge pot. It's 100 million euros that people can spend to look at how they want Paris to kind of be a better place to live, essentially, in amenities. So you have things like co-working spaces, green walls, cycle lanes, that kind of thing so it's different to what you've been discussing because a lot of the deliberative processes that we've been talking about are advisory right whereas in participatory budgeting people are actually making the decisions and while some participatory budgeting processes have that element of people coming together and really crunching ideas a lot of them don't have that it's just people voting so it's quite different and also it's not a representative sample of the population in the same way so it's open to the whole population and often quite a bit of legwork goes into making sure that's it's not just the people most likely to participate who participate.
2: So now let's get some some conclusions. Tell us how you think we should incorporate what we've heard from James, David, and from yourself into the way our political system works—a sort of de- deliberative democracy. Let's say that we're in the Jeffocracy. Yeah. Um, Jeff appoints you as the cabinet minister in charge of all of these issues, and you get to just tell everybody else what's got to happen.
6: Yeah, okay, so there's loads of places it can be incorporated. So every parliament and government body and public service body should be thinking about which decisions would most benefit from public input, prioritising because you can't do it on everything and then running these processes Properly, um, a few examples. So it would be really powerful for parliamentary committees to start using this as evidence to their inquiries, both lived experience and using this to unblock these issues that are considered too difficult to so open up. I mean, Jim talked about political cover. I'd talk about opening up political space.
2: The criteria you'd use is issues that have proved too controversial, from sort of nuclear waste dumps to equal marriage in Ireland.
6: For a process where you bring together a representative sample of the population. Yes, those complex issues that have proved too difficult in general. Committees and other people should talk to people with lived experience of using a particular benefit of using a service because that's also a valuable source of information but it's a slightly different point government should be doing this Uh, around referendums I think that's a really interesting point you haven't asked me but I think there should have been a deliberative body to look at whether we should leave the EU and if it said yes then there should have been a referendum that body could then also have looked at what options should have been on the ballot paper and they could do what they do in Oregon so in Oregon where they have a referendum or a citizen initiative and they get a representative sample of the population and they hear the arguments either way and they decide what the key arguments are that everybody should know they turn wow. it into a pamphlet and it goes to everybody who's eligible and give us to vote. an example
2: of where that's been applied?
6: So every referendum in Oregon. Do they
2: have lots of referenda in Oregon? They have Oregon. lots of referenda
6: in Oregon. Right. Yeah. So they've done it a lot. It works really well. And um, so I would have Amazing. done that. And also most centrally right now, the referendums told us that people want to leave the EU. It's not told us what shape Brexit should take. There should be a whole load of these going on right now on all sorts of issues. Definitely. So I mean, they're some of the places that I would put them in the political system.
2: Let me do a sort of full disclosure question here, which is Gordon Brown was briefly romantically involved with this notion of citizens juries and and so on. I think one of the issues for politicians is the loss of perceived loss of control here. Sarah tell us what you what you think about that.
6: So I think that's a complete misconception. I think this is a real positive sum game, a win-win for both sides. So for the public, they get to feel much more connected to decision-making. Their views get taken into account much more in decision-making. But for decision-makers, they get a much better quality of information to allow them to make their decisions. So instead of just opinion polls where it's almost like people can have their cake and eat it, they get to see what the public would do when they have all the information and when they have to make those trade-offs themselves, and they understand why. As well. And so I think that's massively empowering for decision makers and it's really helpful to them to do their representative role in the 21st century.
2: And have you seen practical examples around the world where a decision made by a sort of deliberative panel, which is then advocated by politicians, wins more support with the public? Is there buy in from the public who were not involved in the process?
6: Yes, completely. And as I was saying before, The public are more willing to accept decisions that are made by a representative sample of the public of people like them than they are by politicians, at least as willing to accept, often more so, they see them as more legitimate. So yes, there are lots of examples around the world where this sort of process, City of Melbourne is one of them, where they, citizens decided how how the budget would work, essentially how you would keep within budgetary constraints but keep Melbourne a great place to live. That was the challenge they were set. Those recommendations were taken on board. I think 10 out of 11 of them were implemented by decision makers and they have wide public support. But there are lots of, lots of examples of this. Just the UK in some respects is a little bit behind at the moment.
2: Could you do it on the NHS and social care?
6: Yeah, I think that would be a brilliant idea.
2: Because that's an area where I suspect there's more appetite than the politicians realise on taxes and so on.
6: I think there's just a huge opportunity for the Parliament at the moment. Um, Government's fixated on Brexit. There are these huge social issues, the NHS and social care being, I think, the two I'd start with, that that no one's dealing with. There is no shared vision or consensus for what should happen with them. Parliament could run um, a citizens' assembly, a constitutional... Well, it wouldn't be a constitutional convention here. They could run a citizens' assembly on those issues and set the agenda on them. I mean, why not?
3: Is, is there any momentum on this idea though? Because I, I hadn't heard the words. There is now, Just Well, yeah, maybe this is this is the... this We're is Starting the, off here, yeah. you heard it here first. Well, I hadn't heard the word sortition until a couple of weeks no, ago when we first talked about it.
6: So I'd say the appetite is growing and there's a lot of people on the case now right. um, who want to do it on this and... I think it's achievable. So it I really think it is. It needs to be a better
2: name than Sortition. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a board game I'd Sortition have played as a child.
6: Kind of, <laughs> it's more about how you recruit the members for it. So I think, yeah, I, I would definitely ditch Sortition as the idea. I mean, the Citizens Assembly, it's not yeah. very punchy. That's no. actually what it is. I mean, perhaps we can uh, come up with a better one than that as well.
2: Yeah. Email us your suggestions. Yeah. yeah. The, the last question. Title of this podcast is Reasons to be Cheerful. Mm-hmm. You're the head of engagement Involve, and so you're dealing with these issues day to day. Does it make you cheerful
6: yeah, it does it's amazing to get out of the social media bubble and meet a really diverse cross section of the population, see them listen to issues, take them seriously, and come out with really sensible suggestions.
2: I think that's right isn 't it that's kind of why I asked the question because I think that sometimes the wisdom of ordinary people who are not involved in politics is underestimated by the politicians, yeah and actually and you
3: can understand why sometimes when you see opinion polls on things, but the the difference. Between that and what you're talking about, it's, it's huge.
6: Yeah, it's massive. Like It's a real pleasure to facilitate people to form their own opinions and put it forward as opposed to tell people what they ought to vote or what they ought to say. It's it's an amazing thing to be part of.
2: Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So what do you think the geophocracy how, how much of a role is deliberative democracy going to play? Oh,
3: it's playing a big part. It's a big part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, as I said before, it's. I thought it sounded kind of wacky. What do we and- want? Thoughtition. <laughs> Where do we want it? In the Jeffocracy.
4: <laughs> Where do we want it now?
3: It's, it's great. <laughs> I mean, didn't, you're just listening to all those three guests, you just thought, we should be doing this. And like for those of us who feel... Sort of disappointed or despair at the idea of using referendum, referenda to decide things, be it, you know, the AV vote the other year or the um, EU referendum. Um, it feels like a, a fair way of giving people uh, their, their say and involvement in a democracy, but it's informed and that just makes all the difference.
2: I mean, I, I confess that I have been wanging on to Alex, who does the research for this um, podcast, about how I was a real skeptic about this idea, and i and I didn't really understand why, and I think it's partly because of this Gordon Brown flirtation with it, which then he sort of dropped oh go um, um do you ever call him go go no uh but um the uh <laughs> you put me off now um <laughs> but but the 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 thing that I think w- was a bit of a revelation to me in this was. In a way, I think it serves a purpose for politics, which is issues that are tricky and controversial. Um, it, it, it sort of gives you a way of of kind of kind of getting a, getting sort of moving forward with them and, and sort of you know addressing some of them. I think yeah. so. I think the NHS and social care. You know, okay, Labour, Liberal Democrats proposed a kind of tax. I think a tax rise at the last election. Labour proposed tax rises on the high, on the better off. But, you know, how do you actually get to grips with the scale of the funding that's required? You know, the public say in opinion polls, but they want the world willing to pay more. But are they really? You could see that this sort of it wouldn't wouldn't solve the political buy in problem, but it could advance. It could move the ball forward. Yeah, I th- and um, as Sarah said, people trust juries to make decisions. But, do you, do you, but th- that was one of my other questions. Do you think, let's say that there was a certain tax rise proposed from a citizens' jury on social care um, or the NHS or both? Do you think the Do you think a politician can go out and say, "Well, we've had this jury of two hundred people. This is the proposal they've come up with. I endorse this proposal." Do you think that Do you think the public will buy it? Yeah, I, th- I think I think people would as as long as they felt like
3: the the information these people wasn't being given to them with a with it with a view to manipulating them and getting a certain outcome um, if they felt like people were making things from a neutral standpoint based on information presented to them i think it's like a really exciting way of um of engaging people and and revitalizing the democracy
1: reasons to be cheerful with ed Milibands and jeff lloyd hold
0: up what was that
2: We want to hear from you uh, if you've heard something uh, on the show that you want to give us feedback on or you've got ideas for future podcasts or you just want to say hi, uh, then email us reasons at cheerful dot com. You can find us on Twitter and now Instagram at cheerful podcast or on Facebook dot com forward slash reasons Stroke. to be cheerful podcast Stroke. Um, This comes from Richard Beta, who
3: says, Hi guys, just started listening to your podcast. I started with episode 17 on economics and Iceland's gender equality law. As the Prime Minister mentioned, Iceland lends itself to public policy experimentation. In 2010, Iceland published a truth report into the causes of the financial crisis. It traced the causes of the crash, not simply to economic, but to deep political malaise. At the time, I was completing my master's and decided to write my thesis about various innovations addressing this malaise, a major part of the response to this was the drafting of a new constitution through participatory process. Though it's still to be adopted at a time of widespread discontent with the present state of modernity and generalised inequality, adapting this model could help to refresh constitutional democracies around the world and forge a new political and economic settlement in step with present realities." If interested to read more I wrote about it at Open Democracy Sounds like what we've covered on the yeah, it does. podcast today uh, yeah this
2: week the next one comes from Henry Barnes. Hello, Ed and Jeff. Wakey, wakey, marmalade time. Given your shared love of the very lovable Paddington 2, what's your opinion of its portrayal of the UK prison system and rehabilitation? Are films like Paddington 2 and the first film, which had a powerful message about the benefits of immigration, a good way to introduce some of the issues you discussed with your guests to kids? Or is it just a film about a bear who really likes marmalade? <laughs> yeah, I think the Paddington story is a lovely story, both about uh, you know people coming from... A Abroad and becoming part of the community here. And uh, without a kind of spoiler alert and all that, you know, in Paddington 2, there's sort of a rehabilitative aspect. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't
3: reflect very well on the British justice system that a bear can be sent to prison for such a long time for a a minor crime, which, in fact, he didn't actually
2: commit. That is true. Yeah. That is true. You think it calls into question the sort of general... Justice. I think so. Situation. Did you see
3: it with Justine, your wife, who's a legal mind? Yes. Do you think she would have done a spirited defense of Paddington given the chance? Mm, uh,
2: yeah. Uh, well, she, she would have gone out to defend him. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I, it was,
3: it was quite, that was quite the And as a judge, I'm
2: sure she would have been more lenient. Yeah, she would have seen through
3: it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one um, says Dear Mario and Luigi. That's us. It is, it is a, I should say when I say this one, it's sent by somebody who'd prefer that we, uh, uh, we kept them anonymous. Not because they don't want to be associated with the podcast. Hopefully, hopefully not. Yeah. Um, thank you for covering prisons in your latest podcast. I've been meaning to write to you for several weeks to suggest that very topic. Why are we
2: called Mario and Luigi, by the way?
3: Don't like Super Mario Brothers, have we got a touch of that to us? I know that when you were wearing your Reasons to Be Cheerful baseball cap on stage at the live show, you had a touch of Super Mario to you. Have you ever grown a mustache? I know you had your beard briefly.
2: Mm, no, I not don't thought think
3: of so. like an old Peter Mandelson style mustache. No, I think I think I'm distracting us. Okay, carry okay. on. <laughs> um, I'm a one-time user of the prison service, having been released in 2015, and so have taken an interest in the topic of imprisonment and the justice system since then. It seems I was lucky in that my time, two and a half years, passed by largely without incident and without encountering many of the problems I now read about on an almost daily basis. You talked briefly about the problems encountered by ex-offenders in finding employment on release, and I'd like to bring to your attention the the ban-the-box movement for employers. It's standard for employers to ask on application forms about unspent convictions, but there's a growing call for this to be left off until later in the recruitment process. More information can be found, and then he um, gives us a web address, which we'll put in the notes for the show. Uh, he finishes by saying, I was sentenced for my crime. I've served my time, but my punishment in this one respect will never end. I think this
2: is an interesting campaign issue, actually. Karen Buck, my friend, Labour MP I've mentioned her before, has talked to me about this this issue because if you wanted to rehabilitate people who've uh, were convicted of crimes you know sort of saying that they're kind of were criminals uh, at the early stage it's probably it's just a sort of big marker for employers not to employ them for for a lot of employers yeah isn't it yeah because i think there's, there's still a lot of prejudice yeah yeah um the next one is about our nhs uh Podcast. Hi, guys. I love listening to your podcast on my regular drives from Cardiff to Manchester to see my partner. I just want to share my story. This is uh, George from Wiltshire. Um, I'm a 19-year-old student nurse that's just coming to the end of my first placement on the ward. Having never been on a ward before, I was shocked how badly understaffed they can be and how being down just one nurse or healthcare assistant can have a huge impact. As a student, I should be supernumerary, but at times like this, I found I'm counted in the numbers. Sometimes I've had eight highly dependent patients look after myself while qualified staff have the break. I'm only a first year. I know I'm not alone too. I live with other students. They've come back from placement some days in tears because of how bad and stressful it is. Other than the stress of it, I've loved nursing and caring for patients so far. It's so rewarding to see the difference you can make to individuals' lives. I just wish there was more time to actually spend talking to patients. It's been a huge, huge eye opener into the dire state our wonderful NHS is in. We really need more money and more staff, not cuts, and having our throughs removed. All the best, George. And this
3: comes from Ian M. Cullen, who says, "Been listening to your show for the last few months. I enjoyed listening to the episode you did on the idea of a universal basic income. I think that's the seems one- like such a long time ago. It does, but people still mention that to yeah, me a lot. It really cut people's imagination. Nineteen weeks ago." Is that right? We should have a little 20, episode 20 yeah. party. Yeah. Well, maybe that's what the live show was, really. Yeah.
2: Actually, that was my lunch with George. That was, that was, <laughs> that was tomorrow, the 20th episode. Sorry, I just sort of <laughs> meant, to, meant to invite
3: you. <laughs> uh, he, he says about the um, UBI, I think it will be something that could well happen in the coming years. In the popular science fiction series Star Trek, the Earth is living in a post scarcity economy where they do not use money. How about a show in which you Discuss the economics of Star Trek. There are a number of guests you could have on for this, which include the writer Manu Sardia, who wrote an interesting book called Trekonomics The Economics of Star Trek. You could also maybe have Trek historian on, um, Larry Nemacek, who could probably give some subtext with regards to the history that leads to Star Trek's economy. Well, I know. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let's Let's get get William Shatner on. Should we get William Shatner? My nemesis, William Shatner.
2: Yeah, should we get him on?
3: No, well, I would tweet him, only he blocked me on Twitter. Yeah, he did. And, Were uh, you a
2: Trekkie growing up? I mean, before you had your contretemps with William Shatner.
3: Well, I always enjoyed Star Trek. So did. I, I quite enjoyed. I, I, I was really into my Star Wars and Doctor Who, but I enjoyed Star Trek, and you know, is is a matter. Of some distress to me that William, Star
2: Trek 1, not not the, much as you like Patrick Stewart. And yeah, I never, and never really got into it. It was just because it was after your time, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, <laughs> I see where this is going. No, 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 it wasn't meant <laughs> offensively.
2: <laughs> it was after my time too, wasn't
3: yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it is a matter of some distress to me that will... Leonard Shatley. Nimoy, I mean... It was... The late Len- Leonard Nimoy, yeah. yeah. I bet he wouldn't have blocked me on Twitter. I'm just sure he wouldn't yeah. have done can, can you do the, um, the Dr. Spock thing Ooh. with your hand? <laughs> we know you <laughs> can do Bendy Bully. Can you do the Dr. Spock hand sign? Yeah, it's, 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 we can both do the Vulcan hand sign from Dr. Spock on the HMS That's not Enterprise. the same as Nanu Nanu,
2: is it? No, that, that's Mork and Mindy. Well, what was the sign for Mork and Mindy? I don't know what he used well, to do. is not that similar to that? I, d- I don't know. We Life's do need st- to have a Dallas discussion at some point. Oh, because you... I watch quite a lot of Dallas. As a now
3: this this is strange to me, given you know, on one hand you're, a bundle playing, of you're playing class struggle, yeah, I know. and on the other hand you're. Very I secretly used to watch Dallas the without telling my parents of, of an oil dynasty. Didn't you
2: think Dallas was actually brilliant? It is
3: very weird to me that we watched that as kids. I would have been a primary school kid, and um, I thought
2: it was just watching I was about just an oil baron having an
3: affairs and screwing over his business rivals. Yeah. It was
2: just because it was the suspense, I think, was mm. part of it.
3: I always, so J.R. Ewing had a nemesis who was Cliff Barnes. I really liked And there was Cliff something of the underdog too, but yeah, And I, I, I always really strongly related to I Cliff Barnes. So did I. J.
2: So I even shared his like, liking for Chinese food. <laughs> <It was just laughs> Honestly, the, other, the trivia I know, I'll ask me any question about Dallas. So when you were talking about your Honestly. political role models and, and what have you Cliff <laughs> Barnes was Barnes one of them. I <laughs> don't think it worked out too well for Cliff Barnes. Uh, no, I mean honestly, I just love Dallas. Oh well, maybe at the Liverpool show we can do um, Dallas, Dallas Mastermind. Yep, two
3: minutes on d- Dallas. <laughs> yeah. How about the spin-off Nuts Landing?
2: I know, I never really got into that right. or
3: Dynasty, but the classic original
2: Dallas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, at Cheerful Podcasts. Or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast.
3: And here to suggest some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, comedian Felicity Ward, hello. Hello. And hello. We, we just had to say, um, let's start the tape going because we were about to get into some deep, very deep. Neighbors, Neighbours. Uh, is, is it gossip? Is it a story? What, what do you name?
1: Oh, I've got two things. <laughs> I'm the
2: backing track,
1: here. yeah. You should sing the entire time I'm on my ear. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would like just to. A- the
2: karaoke.
1: And it's uh, it's sad how many people bring this up when I go on podcasts. They bring up Neighbours right. about Australia, but I don't even mind because I was a mad Neighbours fan.
3: I would never have done so apart from the fact that we were talking about it before we switched the microphones on. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um. So we were such Neighbours fans. We weren't allowed to eat dinner in front of the television, but when Scott and Charlene got married... Mum let my sister and I dress up in our flower girl dresses and we ate dinner in front of the TV. Watching it. (laughs) Watching it.
2: How old were you?
1: I was probably, yeah, 25 (laughs) and 27. I think we were like four and six. Amazing. But then later when I had a drinking problem and our TV show got nominated for an award, we went to our version of the BAFTAs, which was like, they're called the Logies. The NAFTAs. The really NAFTAs. And all the soap stars, that's where they get like their most popular TV personality so I got drunk and went up to the Neighbours table because we had two characters in our sketch show that were obsessed with Toadie from Neighbours oh yeah and they met earlier in the night and he was like a great dude so we went up to the Neighbours table and Susan was there Susan Susan Kennedy yeah I don't know her real name and I told her that story and I was just drunk and she was like cool Oh, but it is a cool story.
3: It's not a cool story. You a flower story. girl at Scott and cool. Charlene's wedding She's a cool in, in a
2: not nice way.
1: And, you know, she just why, why to are you talking to me? Like, like, she wasn't being an asshole. I was being, I'm like, uh, i got to tell you this story. <laughs> like, it wasn't like, I wasn't demure little Felicity going, oh, excuse me, Mrs. Kennedy, would you mind ever so if I told you something personal? I was like a real, do you know I want to know my story? <laughs> okay, here's No, 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 listen, you're going to love it.
3: So it would have been that would have been pre her era of neighbours, right? Oh
1: well, there's the Scott and Charlene, absolutely.
3: Yeah, so this would be like someone coming up to Ed and talking about Michael Foot.
1: Exactly, that's exactly the same. I mean, I'd be quite glad, quite, lied, quite
2: lied to talk about Michael Foot. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's bad when you meet your childhood heroes or heroines and they don't yes. quite live up.
1: Well, I, I actually feel like if I was a if I was not inebriated, it would have been yes, a right. So it was on you,
2: really, not on it her. was
1: absolutely on me. And I have met heroes, and they've been. Fabulous. Kylie,
2: have you met Kylie?
1: I haven't met Kylie, oh. I know. No, I don't know any other Neighbours people. Lots of Home and Away people, but they're, they're sort of in the Sydney acting circles.
3: Right. Mm. Um, you've just got back from Australia, actually. I have. Uh, you were over there covering covering the ashes.
1: I was kind of covering the ashes. I was covering the ashes in a way that I was watching it on TV five days a week, like everybody But else. you
2: had a sort of hit podcast.
1: Yeah, the podcast went all right. We, in the first week, we were like... I don't know, number eight on the iTunes. It's fantastic. And
2: and it was called, and people can download it. It was called
1: the Unbelievable Ashes podcast.
2: Unbelievable Ashes.
1: It was myself and Andy Zoltzman, and um, we just did a funny recap of the test that we passed and the the test that was coming up, and it was a lot of fun. If you don't like cricket, I still think there's something in there for you. And I think I explain a lot of cricket in a way that people. And was it
2: quite a lot of. You know, he shouldn't have put the fielder at silly mid on because, uh, you know, if he'd only been at silly mid off, it would have been all right. Or
1: there was a little bit of that. There was more like things that, yeah, very good work, Ed. Very good. He knows what he's bloody I mean, talking. I feel like he's
2: talking another language. Well, sort yes. of slightly bluffing,
1: but there was more. There was, we talked about highlights. For example, there was a ball that Mitchell Stark bowled to um, James Vince, I think his name is, I think his name's James, uh, an English player, and uh, it was in Western Australia and basically the stumps exploded. It was it a was, rip snorter. It was an unplayable ball. Wow. And in all the comments section, all the English people are going, oh, yeah, but, I mean, yeah, hit this, the see. crack. He didn't know he was going to hit the crack. Anyone? And it was just like, just chill out. Everyone yeah. just gets very defensive who loves cricket.
3: mm. And Andy Zaltzman's great. There's a touch of the art Garfunkel to his hair, I always say. Oh,
1: the pair of us, we have photos together and are very similar. If if I was balding a little bit more at the front, we would look more alike, but we both had the same size hair and head.
3: Is that why you moved to the UK to get away from the humidity?
1: Yeah, that's right. It was unbearable. I just walked around with an afro all the time.
3: So you're here to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Yes. Um, What's the first one you have?
1: I think that this has come specifically from my experience I think that there should be government issued free mattresses for everyone. I think everyone should get an excellent mattress because then you have a good night's sleep. And you don't feel like killing people the next day. And good I think idea. my mum is a has worked in bedding for like a decade. She's
2: worked in bedding. She's
1: worked in bedding, yeah. She's which she works in
2: That's not a part of Australia. No,
1: that's right. It's a bedding.
2: Uh, <laughs>
1: uh, it's just below best yeah. Um uh, no she yeah, she, she sells mattresses and beds. And a good mattress is very underrated. Wow. And people have bad sleeps all the time because of Does it. Does she
2: sort of inspect your mattress?
1: No, well that's I mean I can't tell you how devastating it is living over here. My mum sells beds. My sister's a banker. My dad is a builder, and my uncle is a mechanic. And so I have all these like basic needs and experts covered at home. Yeah, except I live on the other side. Bring them over
2: for a family trip. No, no.
1: I mean, their expertise is very uh, wanted. Their personalities, absolutely. I'm joking. I'm joking. They're great.
2: So she doesn't, but you can't sort of Skype the bed with her and sort of show her the bed. Say, is this the right?
1: Sort no, because of- they also sell different things over here that they do in mm. Australia. But she gets, she gives me some feedback.
3: Where, do, where does she stand on the whole memory foam issue?
1: She's so so about the memory foam. She's more onto, into latex. What,
3: what's what's into, latex? <laughs> so into la- latex? Into latex. Yes, Not latex. Into so, latex.
1: Latex, right. latex mattress mattresses they're a is
3: this for, for bedwetters
1: it's not for bedwetters no it's just a more supportive mattress uh-huh. and uh, no it's we're i'm not three steps TV
2: behind shows. i'm afraid so memory foam you're gonna to have to enlighten me memory foam
3: is uh the, it remembers it, your shape of yeah, your body you lie in the bed and it looks a bit like uh, if you ever see photographs of pompeii where people were frozen mm. by the lava yeah like the uh the uh, I'm not sure you're frozen by lava, actually. Uh, absolutely not. I'd <laughs> yeah. say you'd burned alive yeah. very quickly. But... <laughs> uh, where, where people were sort of uh, entombed in lava yeah. and then you get the exact shape of them. Memory foam mattresses are a, a bit, bit like that. I think so. Right? I hate
1: them. I've got a memory foam pillow and it was the worst investment I've ever made. It hurts my neck every day.
2: Water beds were big, weren't they?
1: We had a water bed. Really? Your, know, pa- your
3: parents did? Yes. and I Do think, you think they were swingers?
1: No, but I think it's what poor people thought rich people had. So right. we bought a and every time you get on it, like one of them, you get thrown off the bed. And we were kids, so we'd come in and go, "Mum, Mum," we'd jump on the bed, and then they get seasick. It was and, like me uh, with
2: my trampolining incident with a yes, small yes. child. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did, they,
1: did they fall off? Yeah, it was yeah. sort of
2: was slightly unfortunate. Yeah. But, um, so, yes, would not water beds, no, no. Uh, memory foam, not
3: really. No. So,
1: the latex, and then there is—I mean, there is a whole range of um, other
3: mattresses. So, what type of mattress do you think should be government issued?
1: Well, I think that, that I think that you you get assessed. I think it should be part of the NHS. And you lie down on a bed and you go, "This is too hard" or "This is too soft." And then I look. I just think that uh, when you have to deal with uh, terrible weather every single day, mostly in the UK, often I know that people are going to write, be very angry about that.
2: No, no, it's fine.
1: But it is. It it, mentally, it has an effect on you. And as someone who has mental health issues, it has a huge effect on me. And so I think in any other way that you can provide mental like a good wellness mental wellness or physical wellness then that they they talk to each other it's physiological
2: and given that you people spend a quarter to a third of their life yes you know it's, it's kind of under scrutinized i would say
1: yes mm. i i absolutely believe that
2: let's nationalize the mattresses,
1: nationalize Thank the you. beds i'm yes. sorry i'm a big dirty socialist when it comes to mattresses <laughs> it's fine. that's just how i sit
3: <laughs> what else have you got for us
1: it's more to do with happiness um i think if you live in a country that has grey or cold weather for a majority of the year.
2: Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> hypothetically
1: speaking, if this happens to be you, you have you have to paint your buildings bright colours like in Spain.
2: Oh, this is good, isn't it? There
1: was also um, a recent survey that grey is like a majority of, the, of England's favourite colour or Britain's favourite colour and actually grey is not very good for your mental health.
3: People are actually saying that grey is my favourite colour.
1: Yeah. I don't know who these people are. But I feel sad for them.
3: Yeah. Have you, um put your money where your mouth is and painted your house a bright colour.
1: No, because I rent because I live in London and I can't afford a house because I've been pushed out of the property ladder. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. It's not sore at all. I'm in, in my, al- I'm in my life Whereas
2: in Australia you've basically got all of this uninhabited space, basically,
1: haven't you? I mean, in Australia we're facing exactly the same problem. It's just oh, really? sunnier and there is uh, and there is more space. We're, we're building slowly. But, um, yeah, we have a housing crisis as well there. It's not quite the same where we don't have – I don't think we have the same amount of unoccupied properties as there are in London. For right. Time. What's astounding to me is like if we look out the window here, you can see a lot of brown and red brick, you can see grey, you can see black, you can see white. If you were looking out and seeing primary colours, yes, you might think it's a little bit infantile, but you'd go, hmm <laughs> You're not going to look at bright colours every day and go, I feel sad.
3: So, so Ed has found some, uh, some evidence to An s- article. support this.
1: The Rainbow Village... Hoping to improve mental health in Kabul I'm not sure if they would appreciate the rainbow village if how their um, LGBT laws are there I don't know <laughs> in Afghanistan. Uh, Afghans know the impact color can have on life and um, look this I mean they've gone absolutely mental there's some there's an individual an Indonesian village gets a rainbow makeover at all as well uh, Indonesia however have literally painted rainbows on their houses and rainbow stripes where in Kabul they've just all gone individually different colors. The effect
2: So bright colours is good. White is good because it absorb it, it reflects, reflects the heat. Yes. And that's good for it means that buildings don't heat up so much, don't need to use so much air conditioning. I think I was seeing recently somewhere they were painting the pavements white because again that has a sort of positive effect on it not being so hot, cooling people down and all that. Mm. So it's good for hot countries.
1: Yeah, terrible here. Uh, Paint but, the houses black, but, absorb the heat.
2: <laughs> but but here there are sort of Cheers people up is basically the point. Anyway, we're into this, I think. Okay. we've got to think about colors. beds
1: bed colors. colors. yeah.
2: And did you have another idea?
1: I didn't, but I just thought about one just then. I, I mean, I don't know.
3: No bad ideas in brainstorming for this. No, answer. no, honestly, no judgment. Okay. It's a safe space.
1: I I always come from an angle of mental health because that's how I could everything that I is through a lens of mental illness for me. Not that I'm always mentally ill. Well, I am, but I'm not always sad. Um, I feel like there should be a place, and obviously, this would require a lot of training and uh, and tests. But I would love um, if you had depression that you could go to like a place like you know those cat cafes but with pandas so you weren't allowed to touch them but they were allowed to like come and cuddle you just baby pandas running around, falling over, being idiots in front of you. I can't watch panda videos and be sad. Yes.
2: I I I love panda videos. Ed is a big one for a cute animal video, aren't you? I totally am. It's a sign of middle
1: age. I I just love panda. They seem like naughty little pandas as well (laughs) when the the (laughs) zookeepers. Have you seen
2: the one of the four? The the, the Chinese did one of the because they had a record uh, birth of pandas uh, last year and so they did one of 42 of them oh wow um all sort of scrubbling around oh, looking man. cute honestly it's the, I, I totally agree with you
1: anything baby panda there's a video just pandas just i think just let's keep it simple to start right, with. you okay. know we can we can move into lima territory yeah. and you know yeah. and given how hard it
3: seems to be to get pandas to reproduce do you think it would be difficult to have a network of panda cafes
2: up and down the country
1: well i mean what if you got to watch them have sex You know, that would be a miracle then as well. How
2: would the pandas feel? The, the... I don't
1: know. I'm just oh. Oh, look. We're just spitballing ideas. I'm not into watching them having sex. I'm just saying I don't know why you brought that up in the first place. <laughs> well, um, and I panicked and I did. There's my best many to get things we that.
2: wonder about with Jeff. But, <laughs> but, but, but you're actually saying the live pandas. Sorry. I'm. i I'm, yeah. I'm, Oh right. I see. Not just the videos.
1: No. 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 I mean videos. They're a gateway for me uh, to hug a real panda. But I just, have you ever touched a panda? No. <sighs> no. I don't know if you're allowed unless you've got a degree.
3: Right. P- I'd be willing panda to panda tra- degree. I would be panda willing studies. to tra-
1: yeah, panda studies. I've got a BA in panda studies. Maybe we should be
2: teaching in schools panda studies. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Yeah, national absolutely. curriculum. E yep. back.
1: Absolutely, make it mandatory again. <laughs> Definitely, no choice. You just got to learn about are. pandas.
2: Beds, colours, and pandas. I think it's quite a good combination. It's actually. not bad, is it? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a winning manifesto. I think it totally is. Three pledges. If um if people were to come and see you, mm-hmm. are you
3: are you around at the moment? Are you doing stuff? No,
1: yeah, I am. <laughs> um, if you go to felicityward.com, All of my gigs are there. Actually, most of my gigs are there. I've got a lot to update. I'm so bad at admin.
3: Comedians are very bad at updating their own websites, I've noted. I
1: even have someone that can help upload the dates. I just have to write down the dates and the gigs and send them to them to upload. Even that is like, ugh.
3: It's exhausting.
1: It's exhausting. Like, I love doing stand-up comedy. I don't love data entry. I'm sorry. And it's no offence to people who love it because there are people that are good at it and love it. Who probably wouldn't
3: love doing stand-up comedy.
1: No, they'd hate it. Yeah. Understandably so.
2: Well, we'll come and see you.
1: Okay. That sounds threatening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. There are two things that I'm very excited about. One is that I have a, a fundraiser on Monday but that is sold out and that's at the Comedy Store um, for a homeless charity in uh uh, North London called Together in Barnet. And then I'm opening, there's an American comedian called Maria Bamford, who's one of my favourite comedians. Oh, of all she's times.
3: wonderful. You know, her sitcom's been cancelled.
1: Ah, oh, well, they're idiots then. That's such a great sitcom. It's, in, it's incredible. What's the sitcom called? It's
3: called Lady Dynamite. It's very oh, odd. Yeah. It's, it's on the Netflix. the weirdest thing you you're doing it. a
2: show with
1: her. I'm opening for her at Leicester Square Theatre. Oh, all the, do you know, the dates? It's the it's three dates. I think it's the 21st, 22nd, 23rd of March. Um, she's doing two nights. She's doing two shows and then one on the Tuesday or Wednesday or something, but they're mostly all sold-outs again. So if you right. can get tickets, get tickets to that. But that's a bit of a dream for me, so that's very exciting. Great. Yeah, Thanks
2: so much for coming along.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: So as I came up for the recording today, I found a letter. Yes. And it's it's from your mother-in-law, Lynn Barron. My wife did try to hide this letter from you. (laughs) Dear Mr. Miliband and Jeff, I think she should call me Ed, love the podcasts. My friends and relatives, only three relatives speak to me, have subscribed. Also to Adrift, but that is not relevant here. (laughs) Uh, We don't tell Annabelle. As a Chicagoan who knows people who know Obama, my hope is to somehow have Mr. Miliband's dream of having Obama on the podcast come true. Although Mr. Miliband is more likely able to have that happen than I am. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, Jeff, four weeks from today, I will hug Eugene and you and Sarah. Mr. Miliband, there is always a place at our table for you and Justine and Sam and Daniel and beds in the basement. Lots of love from a very big fan. Well,
3: an interesting thing is that letter took a while to arrive, both because because of the uh, American postal system and because my wife hid it from you. So they actually arrive next week. They will be here. Well,
2: I'm really looking forward to it. I've actually invited them to the House of Commons with George Ezra. Uh, <laughs> I forgot to tell you. Uh, but, but, you know, she, she's coming to lunch with Have I told uh, you they're not allowed to stay with us? Yeah, you did. Go on. So
3: but- we, we have a spare bedroom. In fact, we're, we're in it at the moment re- recording, but my wife has forbidden it, not because um, it would interfere with recording the podcast, but because they're coming for three and a half, four weeks. And this is your mother-in-law, mother-in-law. And- and father, in law yeah. what's his name? We haven't it's talked. Joe, to... Barron. Joe Barron, Joseph Barron the fourth. Um, so they're staying in an Airbnb around the corner to avoid. Uh, well, that's
2: the... probably quite a good strategic move. From that's your... that's the
3: plan, I think. Sarah from is Sarah, understanding it? of her own limitations with her parents under the roof, and uh, she's she's trying to just uh, take the pressure out a little bit. I'm sure it'll be great.
2: Yeah, well, we should give them. We should show them a good time. Da 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 da.
3: Told you that she, <laughs> that's
4: the definition of a good yeah, time. It's a good
3: time. Yeah. She she before she comes she tends to send a list of things that she wants. In the house for when she gets here, like me, like well, you. And she wants detergent that's un- like um, washing machine liquid that has no perfume in it because it brings her out in hives. What? <laughs> <So> <laughs> she wants an enormous bag of parsley because she chomps on it every morning to I don't know it thins the blood. I don't know what it that's does. Quite quite good um, actually. She goes out into the backyard and does kung fu <laughs> as well for, for an hour and a half every morning. Does she really? Or tai chi or some, some one of those it things? Can't be kung fu. Maybe not. No. <laughs> so yeah, you'll have. I'm Looking forward to their their arrival. There's a lot to get ready before they get here.
2: Well no, it'll be great. And I, honestly we'll we'll find a way of entertaining them. Great. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um oh. I've got the Super Bowl coming up. This the Super Bowl will have happened by the time this goes out. And I tried to get Ed to make I'm a pre- big New England Patriots fan. They're, they're hated by everybody because everything's their cheats and everything, but they're like incredibly good. I oh, in fact I did this interview with Alistair Campbell for GQ today and um uh, whilst well, talking to him about Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, because he's, you know, he, as somebody was saying to him, he's probably the, the kind of best sports person in the world. Just in like, of Even his, I've heard of him, and I, know, I don't know of Just in name terms of, of his sort of, his, his, his mental discipline is extraordinary. He just comes, he's always coming from behind, winning a game that he's, kind of, you know, that they're about to lose and so on. But I'm probably tempting fate, so I'm not making any predictions. I was
3: trying to get Ed to make no. a prediction. He said he wouldn't because no. he was worried about jinxing it. And are you going to stay up and watch it
2: then? Well, last year, I went to bed at halftime when they were losing to the Atlanta Falcons 28-3, and they came back and won in a sort of never-to-be-repeated comeback. So I think I'm not going to make the same mistake again. Maybe you're a jinx, though, do you think? Yeah. Maybe- they have won, I think, when I've watched it. Okay. Uh, the previous time I also went to bed just before they came back and won, so maybe you've got a point.
3: Well, maybe if our entertaining of my mother-in-law goes well, we are could they be... going to be here for the Super Bowl? The, the, they are not. not no, they're no, going no. just after no. it. But maybe if our entertaining of them goes well, we could be the entertainment at halftime at next year's Super
2: Bowl. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not quite sort of Justin Bieber, is it?
3: Oh, but you know, people people are ready for change. Beliebers. Yeah. Um, we should mention the live show in Liverpool uh, that is in the notes the, the link, buy your tickets the link now to buy tickets that is in the notes it sells out. and uh, also in the notes for th- this week's episode you'll find the link if you want to treat yourself to a reasons to be cheerful t-shirt or if, uh, don't be a ranty pants
2: t-shirt and, and so on that's all there should we do some thank
4: yous
2: Thank you to David Van Raybrook, historian and writer. Thank you to James Fishkin, and thanks to Sarah Allen. Thanks to the brilliant Felicity Ward. And
3: thanks to Emma Corsham who produced our podcast with backup and research, policy research from Alex Feist, Bryce and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse was our announcer. James Deacon made our eye
2: dents. Ed Seed provided music, and Emily Power. Did our artwork. We should say that the, for those who weren't at the live show, it will be broadcast at a later date Yeah, we'll, to be announced.
3: Yeah, we're going to put it out in a few weeks. Yeah, yeah. Right. He's been Mario. He's been Luigi. And these have been... our Reasons to Be Chefs.
1: Ever
0: catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row?